0: PFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, what comes after a ceasefire in Gaza? Didi Guttenplan, editor of The Nation, will comment. Also, the Trump years are not the only time American democracy has been threatened. The World War I years, when Woodrow Wilson was president, were another. That's what Adam Hochschild argues. His book, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis, is out now in paperback. But now it's time for what Naomi Klein calls a beacon of light in these shadow-filled days. Victory for the United Auto Workers in their strike against the big three automakers, GM, Ford, and Stellantis. For that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back.
1: Always good to be here, John.
0: So this comes after 8,700 members of the United Auto Workers have been on strike for six weeks. It's the longest US auto strike in 25 years. The union announced first on last Wednesday a tentative deal with Ford, then with Stellantis on Saturday, they make Dodge, Ram, Chrysler, and Jeep. And then on Monday morning, we got the news that the last of the big three, GM, had also agreed to a tentative contract. The union started out asking for a 40% raise and several other other big things. What's in the deals that are now being voted on by union members?
1: Well, a lot is in the deals. And in, in some ways, what you see in the deals is the restoration of the historic UAW contract of 1950, which created some things that have vanished in recent decades, but are now back, and in some ways that that go beyond that. So let me run through the particulars. First, in general, there is a 25% raise over the four-year, eight-month duration of these contracts. But it's really more than that, because the UAW got the COLA, the cost of living adjustment, reinstated after it uh, dropped out of these contracts around about the time of the bank collapse and uh, ensuing recession of 2008. And so when you factor that in for the average UAW member at these three companies, the, the raise, it really comes to about 30% and perhaps more. It depends on the rate of inflation. So it's really about a 30% raise, but it's not uniformly a 30% raise. In the spirit of solidarity, which not every union can accomplish, it is a much higher raise for the lower paid workers, for way, w- workers who are on a lower pay scale, and it also makes temp workers permanent workers. Uh, as soon as the contracts are ratified by the rank and file, they shift that status, and if there' are a new temp hire, they become permanent after nine months. So for these lowest paid workers, the wage hike amounts to I need a drum roll here <laughs> an 88 percent wage hike.
0: Wow, um, Join a union. Get an 88 percent pay hike.
1: I think that is the most sort of mind-boggling Whoa, There are bonuses. There's a $5,000 bonus to workers once the contract is ratified. There are increases uh, to the company's contributions to 401ks. And then two other, uh, I think, really significant things. Uh, the, The union will now has a right, without violating the contract, it's in the contract that it has a right to strike Anytime there are future plant closures, that is kind of a victory uh, of your defensive strategy. But there is a victory on the offensive strategy as well, which is that we don't have the details on uh, all of this. But it appears that the deal that had been previously agreed to at General Motors about uh, extending union membership to uh, workers at the uh, joint venture battery factories Some version of that is a feature of uh, uh, the Ford and probably the Stellantis contract as well. Also, some increases in pay to existing retirees. You know, this is a victory for UAW members past, present, and future.
0: I want to dwell for a minute on the history here. Going back to, you mentioned the 2007 financial crisis and the government bailout to prevent the bankruptcy of Chrysler and GM. Part of that deal forced UAW workers across the big three to give up their cost of living adjustment, to give up health insurance for retirees. Many of them were not old enough for Medicare. And most significant was the introduction at that point of this two-tiered pay system. Under At that point, new hires would start at half of what existing workers made and not get a pension. And the result was really devastating. Since the crash in 2007, average hourly wages for workers in all vehicle manufacturing adjusted for inflation have fallen by nearly 20 percent Meanwhile, the automakers have seen enormous financial success. Profits at the big three have almost doubled during this period. The companies have spent billions on stock buybacks. CEO pay has gone up by 40% in just the last couple of years. Mary Barra, the CEO of GM, earned $29 million last year. Meanwhile, the UAW did nothing about this since 2007,
1: 2008. Why not? If we look at the experience of the UAW now and the experience of the Teamsters now, because the Teamsters won a huge victory at United Parcel Service earlier this year while threatening to strike, we kind of see a new generation of union leaders who, uh, unlike virtually every other union leader, has been elected by the rank and file. And let us face it, the rank and file is uh, comprised of, basic, you know, your, your basic average Americans who tend to be rather pissed off at A, the economy, and B, when they think about it, the economic inequality. I, I should add, and this is an important point, that the only reason that these two unions went to rank and file elections was corruption of uh, the Ancien regime leadership of both unions, and uh, the federal government's intervention, which uh, promoted uh, rank and file elections <clears throat> rather than convention delegate elections, which generally had been fairly well manipulated, both in these unions and honestly in a whole bunch of other unions, which aren't corrupt. But that system promotes sort of maintenance of leadership, which is something leadership is generally concerned about.
0: In 2017, the Feds brought charges against UAW leaders and convicted 17 people, including two past UAW presidents, of uh, corruption, of taking bribes. Three former Chrysler executives were found guilty of having paid more than $3.5 million in bribes to the UAW officials. Uh, who meanwhile were spending more than a million dollars of members' money, we are told, on golf, steak, dinners, cigars, and booze. Uh, That was then, then came the election for the first time, and uh, then came the first big strike in 25 years for the UAW in particular, the conviction that opened the door to the election of a new president, Sean Fain. But there was a lot more than Sean Fain had to happen before this.
1: It was not just a new president. The reform movement in the UAW ran a whole slate of officers so that at the end, they controlled not just the presidency, but the secretary treasurer's position and half of the seats on the uh, executive board. And they'd only run for half of the seats on the executive board. So they kind of had a clean sweep. This isn't just a ratification of the contract, but a ratification of the skill, the chops of, of the new leadership. And since it is rank-and-file elected, the new leadership's ability to mobilize rank-and-file workers who went out on strike, this is a, just a clear victory for the new team.
0: The business press says the UAW deals will make it harder for the big three to compete with the non-union automakers, Toyota, Hyundai, and especially Tesla. What do you say to that?
1: Well, uh, one of the Ford executives said that this would raise the price of a average Ford car being sold by about 900 bucks. And so, you know, that's something that uh, is is definitely an issue but on the other hand, on the other hand, what are Hyundai and BMW and Volkswagen and Tesla going to say to their own workers when they see what the UAW has just won for its members So I would expect you will begin to see those companies in a defensive way raising wages maybe reducing, You know the share of workers who are who are temps, because at a lot of these plants, and I've been doing some reporting on this over the last fifteen years, at a number of these southern auto plants, you know, as many as half the workers are are you know are temps who aren't nominally uh, officially uh, employees of the uh, the automaking company itself. They're going to come under pressure uh, either to raise their uh, wages, and that would diminish the price differential, because the UAW is going to do serious organizing now at all of the above mentioned southern transplants and Tesla factories, saying, look, why are you working for this when we can get you that? And if that's not a good calling card to those workers, I don't know what is.
0: The big picture here. Last
1: month, two economists
0: at Princeton published new research, a study of the life expectancy of Americans without a college degree. They found that it peaked around 2010 and has been falling ever since. People who did this research are Anne Case and Angus Deaton. They showed that by 2021, not having graduated from college meant eight and a half years fewer of life. You die eight and a half years sooner if you didn't graduate from college uh, than if you did these days. And that was not true uh, before the tremendous losses that followed the 2008 economic crisis. That's the big picture we're really talking about here.
1: It is the big picture. And the picture is about the the across-the-board declining life prospects, uh, for the American working class, uh, and there are many factors for that. Uh, a leading one is deunionization, the resistance of employers, the Ill- illegal acts that they take but which go unpunished, to resist unionization. In mid-century of the mid, middle of the twentieth century, when this was you know that gap was not there, you had uh, a rate of unionization in the private sector that was close to forty percent of the workforce. Today, it's 6% of the workforce. And a decline like that clearly has a direct relationship to uh, the growing gap in, in life expectancy. I would also add there are other factors if I can get into that. Please. One is the behavior of American capital and American capitalists. If, if you look at where business startups have occurred following any of the last seven or eight recessions, American capital decided not to build them in Lordstown. They wanted to build them in China. Uh, and they did. That led to the abandonment of much of the Midwest and 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 other places that it had institutions like these factories as their economic anchors. They lost their anchors and they're they are paying in shorter lives. Let's review
0: the other big strike victories of the last few months you mentioned. The Teamsters new contract with the UPS, this is the largest unionized workforce in the United States. 340,000 UPS drivers represented by the Teamsters won a major pay increase a couple of months ago. Then we had the largest healthcare strike in the history of the United States. Last month, 75,000 members uh, of a union alliance at Kaiser hospitals in several states, won a 21% wage increase over four years. And in California, the minimum wage in healthcare at Kaiser, and also by government action, will be $25 an hour, $23 in other states.
1: I should add that California had raised the minimum wage for hospital and clinic support staff to twenty five dollars, but that is to be phased in over quite a number of years. Whereas, the union alliance at Kaiser Permanente got it raised twenty five dollars just a couple of months from now. No, no phase in required. So again, the unionization made a major difference.
0: Let me just underline here: support staff. This is not the the nurses and the doctors. This is the the housekeepers, the food service workers, the assistants, the technicians, uh, the people who answer the phones. This is a union coalition led by the SEIU Service Employees Union. Of course, we had the victory of the Hollywood Writers' Strike, the Writers Guild of America, still on strike. I think the biggest strike going on right now is 165,000 film and TV actors and members of SAG-AFTRA. The studios And the streamers over this past weekend said they were optimistic about an imminent settlement. The union has not said that. And as of today, we're speaking on Monday morning, the picket lines are up at Disney, Fox, Sony, and all all the other places. What do we know about the prospects of settling
1: the actor strike? It's not really clear. Now, I would have to assume that the deal that the screenwriters won on uh, compensation for streaming is pretty much agreed to among the actors in the studios. I would think that AI may be posing more of a conundrum there. Envision a a movie screen, one shot in which, you know, the star is standing uh, in the front of the screen and 200 people are standing uh, in the back. And uh, the studios would like those 200 people not to be actual, real breathing people, but AI simulations of uh, real breathing people. And the guild is holding out for actual humans. And uh, you know, I I I think that may be one of the real stumbling blocks uh, for the for the SAG strike. And you know, it it portends um, what will be, you know, an ongoing issue uh, about replacement of humans by technology, uh, which has long been an issue in labor uh, disputes, but AI guarantees that it will continue to be, and maybe a heightened one. And one more,
0: a big victory for workers at the happiest place on earth, Disneyland. 25,000 Disneyland workers, it looks like, will get a significant pay hike as a result of the California Appeals Court rejecting the Disney company's effort to get them out from under a new minimum wage referendum that was passed by the voters of Anaheim a couple of years ago that applied to uh, resort workers in the city of Anaheim. Disney claimed somehow this did not apply to them. Even though Disneyland is in Anaheim, this was the voters of Anaheim. This is a slightly different tactic. Although the workers in Disneyland are represented by unions, several different unions. Instead of a strike, they proposed and got the voters to vote on a minimum wage law for their industry. Minimum wage referenda have done very well in America in the last oh, few they, years. They have
1: almost invariably passed when they've been put before voters, including voters in the reddest of red states. Americans tend to vote to raise minimum wages when it's put before them. And the residents of Anaheim are nothing if not Americans. Uh, Walt Disney should be proud about that. And uh, <laughs> that's what they voted. And uh, the court ruled that Disney's claim to be exempted from this was just ridiculous enough that they rejected it.
0: So the happiest place on earth is going to get a little happier as a result of this.
1: We could use at this juncture all the happiness we can find. <laughs> Returning
0: to the big picture, huge season of strikes is underway in the United
1: States. Why is this? What explains this? Well, as I said with the UAW and the Teamsters, some of that is because in these two historically major unions, they became more vehicles for rank and file militants. In in a broader sense, Americans. Uh, are not happy with the economy. Some of that is obviously due to inflation, but specifically it's keeping up with inflation, which requires uh, wage increases. And then more pointedly, some of this goes back to uh, to the mindset that was first propounded really by Occupy Wall Street, that we are the 99%, and there's 1% that is scraping off uh, the revenues that the 99% through their work are producing. This sentiment is out there and you've you've seen it manifested in a whole series of different ways. In in many ways, the uh, support, uh, unexpected support in two uh, consecutive presidential uh, primary elections for Bernie Sanders, the rise of a a, a more worker-oriented economics within the mainstream of the Democratic Party, if you look at who uh, are the economic officials in the Biden administration, in the Labor Department, at the NLRB, in the uh, President's Council of Economic Advisors, you really pretty much have a collection of Social Democrats, which is a first. So it, it's really a shift in the zeitgeist. that We're now be beginning to see rewards from that uh, in, uh, in direct relationships between workers and employers.
0: And one more element in that shift of the zeitgeist that you pointed to, the COVID pandemic and the great resignation where lots of people didn't go to work and then concluded to hell with it. And others had to go to work, couldn't stop. That's the Teamsters, uh, the healthcare workers. I think that also played a role in this shift of the zeitgeist.
1: It did. It did. And the fact that the Biden administration provided the financial aid so we did not go into into a lasting recession uh, during the COVID period, created a job market which is tight. And that always helps workers bargaining, uh, particularly if they're in a union. But even if they're not in a union, we have seen wage increases that are the result in part of a tight labor market. You know, since the $1.9 trillion uh, American Rescue Act that the Biden administration and the Democratic Congress enacted shortly after taking power in 2021. That was pretty much along party lines. So really, the, I think the shift of the Democratic Party to the left has been a really crucial factor in what we're seeing, that hot labor summer is one of the very welcome byproducts of that.
0: Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, thanks for talking with us today.
1: Great to be here, John.
0: It's the same old story, this is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. A ceasefire in Gaza is just the first step. For that, we turn to D.D. Guttenplan. he's editor of The Nation, where you can find his editorial with that title. His books include American Radical, The Life and Times of I.F. Stone, also The Nation, A Biography. And he's also producer of the documentary film Edward Said, The Last Interview. You can see this documentary on YouTube. We reached him today at the magazine offices in Manhattan. Don, welcome back.
2: Great to be back, John.
0: Well, we're recording this on Tuesday, October 31st. Israel has killed at least 8,300 Palestinians in Gaza, according to the Gaza Health Ministry as of today. Nearly 70% of those reported killed in Gaza are children and women, says the head of the UN Relief Agency for Palestine Refugees. The UN Humanitarian Office says more than 1.4 million people in Gaza have now been internally displaced, that's more than half of Gaza's population. Meanwhile, in Israel, the toll from the Hamas attacks on October 7th has reached 1,300 dead, at least 3,300 wounded, 240 hostages are being held right now in Gaza, according to the IDF. And today, of course, Israel's invasion of Gaza is underway, which of course is killing lots more Palestinians, and US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has restated the Biden administration's position that now is not the time for a ceasefire. You open your editorial for The Nation by declaring condemning the slaughter should be the easy part. But remind us what some people did instead of condemning the slaughter.
2: Okay. Uh, Although finger pointing is not my idea of my job. Um, All I'll say is that in the hours and immediate days after October 7th, some on the left seemed reluctant to even acknowledge, let alone denounce these murders. In other words, you would sometimes see statements by left groups deploring uh, the loss of civilian life, but it would never mention the word Hamas. You certainly saw statements, including by some student groups. And of course, with students, one has to make allowance for their youth. And perhaps, if I could be so patronizing, ignorance in treating all of those children, women and elderly people slaughtered by Hamas as legitimate military targets. Now, you know, there is a discussion that one could have, what we call terrorism and what we don't call terrorism But it seemed to me particularly, and I say this as someone who, you know, my job is to take responsibility for every word the nation publishes. While the blood was still wet, uh, the south of Israel, it seemed particularly appalling to me to not allow for empathy and to not recognize that this was a catastrophe for Israeli citizens, just as the murder from the air by the Israeli defense forces over the weeks since has been a catastrophe for Palestinians.
0: You say language matters and point to two statements made by Joe Biden. He condemned quote, the horrific horror of the attack by Hamas, close quote, and he also lamented the quote, Tragic loss of Palestinian life, close quote, that followed. These statements are different in some
2: crucial ways. I put in my time as an English major, and they're different because Biden, when it comes to killings by Israel, just like the New York Times and most of the mainstream media for decades, uh, resorts to the passive voice as if these things just happened. Now, of course, it was my teacher friend and mentor Edward Said who first and most exhaustively pointed out that when the question of Palestine is on the agenda the passive voice is never far behind but you know this was a particularly egregious example of it and it appears to license and encourage the kind of slaughter that we've seen in the other direction over the last few weeks and which is why we say a ceasefire is only the first step.
0: Well, let's go back a couple of years. Jared Kushner claimed to be bringing peace to the Mideast on behalf of Donald Trump with what he called the Abraham Accords. These were agreements with a few Arab states to recognize Israel and establish diplomatic ties. And part of the plan, really the basis of this plan was to ignore the Palestinians. And what did Joe Biden do about that when he took office?
2: Well, that's the thing. The Abraham Accords were a criminally stupid strategy. And uh, the fact that Jared Kushner thought it was a bright idea is frankly no surprise to anyone who knows anything about Jared Kushner. But the fact that Biden embraced it and continued it was, to those who are easily shocked, shocking. And to those who are given to cynicism, ample cause for even more cynicism. I remember. The most recent installment of the Abraham Accords were meant to wed the US, Israel and the regime that Biden, when he was running for office and needed progressive votes, said he would treat as a pariah state, namely the Saudi Arabian regime that that dismembered Jamal Khashoggi. Instead of treating them as a pariah state, he fist bumped with MBS and now he was trying to advance this separate peace whose only rationale strategically had to be to cut out the Palestinians. And, you know, whatever you else you want to say, and I have no brief for it, don't excuse it, consider it murder and a war crime, Hamas did also remind the world that you can't cut out the Palestinians.
0: Hamas is, you know, not a democratic socialist party. It's led by reactionary theocrats who think Muslims should rule All of what is now Israel and expel the Jews, but how different is that from the corresponding view of Netanyahu's ruling coalition?
2: Well, you know, I say that they're both. That I say that no progressive would want to live under Hamas rule, but no progressive would want to live under Netanyahu's rule either. Particularly, Netanyahu has gone some way to remove the various fig leaves that liberal Zionists like to put on the Israeli project over the last several decades. I mean, he's he's caved in again and again, not just to his religious right, but to his fascist coalition partners. You know, these were the people who were banned from politics under labor governments in the past, but who were clearly just as much a part of Israeli political and public life as Hamas is a Palestinian in public life, although they didn't have control over the body politic the same way that Hamas has had control over Gaza until relatively recently.
0: I note that the chant in many of the pro-Palestinian demonstrations this past week has been, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. But let us note that the founding charter of Netanyahu's Likud party declares, quote, between the sea and the Jordan, there will be only Israeli sovereignty.
2: Yes, well, when the nation's London Bureau was marching with the Stop the War coalition against the Iraq war, and writing about it for the nation in London 20 years ago, we noted that uh, there was this chant and that it made it difficult for some of us to feel fully welcome in this march. So it's not a chant for people who wanna build broad coalitions. On the other hand, There are Palestinian friends of mine who argue that to see it as an eliminationist chant is to misconstrue it, that it simply reflects certain aspirations. And I would say, well, you know, you could say the same thing about Lakud. I mean, in the end, and how you get to the end is one question and how long you take to the end is another, to get to the end is another question. And how many bodies you pile up on the way to getting to the end is a third. And at this point, probably the most important question. But in the end, the two peoples are going to have to share the land. That is the only peaceful and just resolution. So to the extent that it signals that you are not willing to share the land with anybody, it's a counterproductive chant.
0: And that's why you say that the ceasefire that we've been demanding is only the first step and that it's what comes next that's the hard part. And you begin by saying we have to acknowledge some inconvenient truths.
2: So the first inconvenient truth is that those who make nonviolent resistance impossible make violence inevitable. And I'm talking here not just about the criminalization of dissent in Israel and in the West Bank, but also in the United States, where the only major nonviolent protest movement on behalf of Palestinian rights, the BDS movement, whatever you may think of its tactics or its conduct, has been banned from college campuses and outlawed by legislatures in 35 states. Well, whether you like it or not, to make it illegal is essentially to force people to embrace violence as as their only avenue.
0: But don't you also think the advocates of BDS need to be clearer and more candid about their goals? Aren't there some differences within BDS about this?
2: Well, that's, to me, the second inconvenient truth, which is that the advocates of BDS haven't always been clear about whether their aim is just to end Israel's occupation of the territories it conquered in 1967, and to gain full civil rights for Palestinians on either side of the green line, which are goals that all people of conscience should support. And in in terms of the second of those goals, potentially attainable by various routes or whether the aim is to abolish the state of Israel altogether. Now abolishing the state of Israel altogether seems to me to a perfectly defensible aim if you're a Palestinian, because nobody asked you and suddenly you're having to share the land with people who mistreat you and subjugate you. On the other hand, if you are arguing that of all the ethnostates in all the world, the only one targeted for elimination is the Jewish one, That seems to me a reason for Jews to be suspicious and perhaps reluctant to engage in coalitions with you. And again, you know, if there's going to be progress on this, there are going to have to be larger and broader coalitions, not narrower and purer sects.
0: The official U.S. government position opposing a ceasefire is based on the argument that a ceasefire would only benefit Hamas at this point. I think that's a, a quote from Blinken. What do you think about that?
2: Well, that goes back to the question I talked about earlier, which is how many bodies you want to pile up on the way to resolving this. It's certainly likely that if there were a ceasefire now, Hamas might restock or refuel or replenish supplies. Uh, You know, on the other hand, the Israeli forces could get some sleep, but that's not really the point. The point is that every dead civilian on either side that you add to the horrendous body count that has already accumulated does absolutely nothing except make it more difficult to get to the path to peace. So since we all recognize there needs to be a ceasefire at some point, why not stop killing now?
0: What are the tasks of the left in particular at this moment in the Middle East?
2: Well, you know, uh, that was a hard one for me. What, are, what should the left focus on? And so I reached for a touchstone that I always reach when I'm engaging with this question. And I'll, I'll read the, what I found first, and then I'll tell you where it comes from. To me, what the left, the values that the left needs to stress are that no human being should ever be threatened with transfer out of his or her home or land, that no human being should be discriminated against because he or she is not of an X or a Y religion, and that no human being should be stripped of his or her land, national identity, or culture, no matter the cause. That seems to me to be an essential, the essential ground for any progressive movement on this issue. And those principles were set down in 1979 by Edward Said in the question of Palestine. And they seem to me to be unimprovable upon and eminently worth fighting for just as much, if not more today than they were in 1979.
0: The path to peace and justice may seem impossible to detect right now, but there is As the Israelis like to say, no alternative. That's from Don Guttenplan in his editorial, A Ceasefire in Gaza is Just the First Step. It's the lead editorial in the new magazine. You can read it at thenation.com. Don, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Weiner talking about politics, thinking about the left. The Trump years are not the only time American democracy has been threatened. The World War I years, when Woodrow Wilson was president, a Democrat, they were another. That's what Adam Hochschild argues. He's an award-winning author. We've often talked about his books here. They include the classic King Leopold's Ghost. It's about Colonialism in the Congo, Spain in Our Hearts, about the Spanish Civil War, and Bury the Chains, about how a small group of people started the movement that ended slavery in the British Empire. We reached him today at home in Berkeley. Adam Hochschild, welcome back.
3: Good to be with you, John.
0: Well, your book is titled American Midnight. For a lot of Americans, that phrase would seem to refer to the Trump years, particularly January 6th. So let's compare and contrast the darkness of the Trump years with the period you deal with, the World War I era, the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. Of course, let's acknowledge at the outset that Wilson did not try to overturn a presidential election. He did not call for an armed mob to attack the Capitol. He won the election both times he ran, 1912 to 1916. So it was not that kind of a threat to democracy. But you say Wilson went a lot farther than Trump in his treatment of opponents, his opponents on the left. We remember that Trump supporters chanted at those rallies in 2016, lock her up, referring, of course, to Hillary.
3: What did Wilson do about his opponents? Well, he actually did lock them up on quite a large scale. Between 1917 and 1921, more than 450 Americans were imprisoned by the federal government for a year or more and a much larger number for shorter periods. And an at least equal number were imprisoned by state governments for a year or more, and larger numbers for shorter periods, solely for things they wrote or said. What set the pattern for this and states passed copycat laws was the Espionage Act, which uh, Wilson pushed through weeks after the United States entered the First World War. and Let me just interrupt
0: and say, the Espionage Act rings a bell. Haven't they heard about that in the news in the last
3: month or two? You certainly have, because uh, Donald Trump may get in trouble under it because of those classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. The Espionage Act is still there. It's been considerably amended. But at the time, in 1917, for the next few years, it was extremely stringent basically allowed the government to put people in jail for things that they said or wrote that were deemed to be unpatriotic at this time that America was at war. And Wilson locked up a number of his opponents, the most prominent of whom was Eugene Debs, the uh, at that time four-time socialist candidate for president who won 6% of the popular vote in 1912 and who was sent to jail for a very eloquent speech he gave saying that the U.S. uh, should think twice about entering the First World War. And he was still in jail in November 1920 when he won more than 900,000 votes for president as a convict.
0: So locking up uh, Debs in 1919 would be sort of like, what, locking up Bernie Sanders today. Is that a reasonable parallel?
3: That's right. I think it is a reasonable parallel. And
0: what exactly was the crime, the act that counted as a violation of the Espionage Act?
3: It was a speech that Debs gave in a park in Canton, Ohio, which said that the people have never had a say in declaring war. They declare war and they send you to war. And Debs had just come from visiting uh, three conscientious objectors who were in the county jail uh, right across from this park. And he spoke very eloquently uh, of them. And he was immediately put on trial. The federal judge in his trial was a former law partner of the Secretary of War. So there was very little <laughs> doubt about which way this verdict was going to go. And it was at that trial that Debs made his very eloquent uh, speech, which ends, you know, while there is a working class. I am of it. While there is a man in prison, I am not free. And he was sentenced to 10 years. And uh, he served more than three of them. And then finally, by that time, the Red Scare had relented. Warren Harding was president. And Harding released him from jail, uh, invited him to visit in Washington on his way home from prison. And as he came out of the White House after that visit, Debs said to reporters, I've run for the White House five times, but this is the first time I've ever gotten here. (laughs) You know, Warren
0: Harding, we are taught that uh, Warren Harding was one of our worst presidents. But what was it he said about Debs? You quote an amazing line in your book that I'd never seen
3: before. He said off the record, Debs was right about the war. We never should have gotten involved in it. And that was something that by 1920 or 21, a lot of people all over the world had come to to feel because of course the First World War started first in Europe in 1914, then in, in the US, we joined in 1917 with an enormous burst of patriotism and everybody on both sides was convinced they were fighting for national survival and noble goals and to make the world safe for democracy and so forth. But by the time it was over, they realized the war was a catastrophe that had remade the world for the worse in every conceivable way.
0: So, we've said that Wilson exceeded Donald Trump by jailing hundreds of his opponents, including the presidential candidate of the Socialist Party, for things they said or wrote. And what about newspapers or magazines that criticized Wilson?
3: During this time, starting with the Espionage Act, which went into effect weeks after the US declared war in uh, April 1917, roughly 75 newspapers and magazines were forced out of business because the Espionage Act gave the Postmaster General, who was a truly terrible man, Albert Burleson of Texas, the power to declare a publication unmailable. And at that time, you know, daily newspapers, the mainstream daily press, you know, was sold on street corners and distributed by newspaper carriers. They were not affected by this. But for weeklies, monthlies, journals of opinion, and most of the country's foreign language press, it had to go through the mail. There was no other means of transmission. And, you know, Burleson, in addition to forcing 75 publications to close, banned hundreds of specific specific issues uh, of additional ones.
0: Trump campaigned on an anti-immigrant platform promising to keep out immigrants from Mexico and to deny admission to the United States of Muslim uh, immigrants. How did Wilson compare with that?
3: Well, when you roll back the clock a century, you see in this country, uh, there has always been really in the United States, a struggle going on between people whose ancestors got here a bit earlier and people who are coming later. And today it's, you know, between people whose ancestors got here, you know, two or three generations ago and newcomers who are of course more likely to be from Latin America. Uh, Back then, there was no immigration to speak of from Latin America but there were an awful lot of new people arriving from Southern and Eastern Europe, primarily Jews, Poles, and Italians. And the people who'd been here for a couple of generations were almost entirely of Anglo-Saxon stock, like Wilson himself. And in their eyes, Jews, Poles, and Italians had not yet, so to speak, become white. So, all of their anti-immigration fervor was concentrated on these newcomers from Southern and Eastern Europe. And it culminated in 1924 with the immigration bill that was passed then that essentially slammed the door on all new immigrants, uh, reduced the, their, the inflow to tiny numbers. And that's what kept Holocaust refugees out of the United States
0: deportation of undesirable immigrants had become a political issue in the 1920 election. What was the debate among the Democrats and the Republicans over deportation?
3: Well, the interesting thing is that right up to the very last minute to the nominating conventions, the leading Republican candidate, General Leonard Wood, a big blood and thunder general, And the leading Democratic candidate, A. Mitchell Palmer, who was Wilson's attorney general, were trying to outdo each other in their promises to deport troublemakers from the U.S. Because, you know, even though it was Palmer's Justice Department that was arresting people literally by the thousands, he was looking for people to deport, that is, you know, troublemakers, radicals of all kinds, who had not yet become American citizens. That's what gave the government the power to deport them. But, but his crusade fell flat. And I think in a way, it denied both of them the nomination, Palmer as a Democrat and Wood as a Republican. What happened was this, Palmer so much believed his own alarmist warnings that he was predicting as he was running for president in early 1920, all through that spring, that on May day of 1920, the international workers holiday, there would be a nationwide communist uprising. Did that happen? No way, (laughs) all around the country, everybody prepared for it. New York City, they called in all three shifts of the police force. One Mm -hmm. shift was on the streets. The other two were waiting in station houses. Everywhere the National Guard was put on alert, JP Morgan hired extra guards, they put extra security personnel at railway stations and ferry terminals and the whole country was paused, you know, headline after headline for this uprising and absolutely nothing happened. And that kind of took the steam out of Palmer's presidential campaign. And oddly enough, it spilled over to the Republican side. And instead of electing General Wood, which everybody thought was going to happen, they selected Warren Harding as the uh, presidential candidate for the Republicans, who ran famously on the platform of return to normalcy.
0: Let's go back to Wilson for a minute here. You know, when I went to high school, I was taught that Wilson was a progressive, a reformer, that he wanted to make the world safe for democracy, that he wanted a war to end all wars. And that sounded great to me. And I wrote high papers in high school, I can remember, saying, you know, he's one of our greatest presidents for this reason. Is Was
3: this completely false? Well, you know, the funny thing about Wilson is I think he was a tremendously paradoxical, complicated man you can't quite hate him as an all out demagogue there was an idealistic side to him he was a moderate progressive when he was elected to office and in favor of you know regulating business a little more child labor laws progressive income tax things like that but you know he there was one way in which he was a tremendous idealist he had this idea for the league of nations the longer the us was in the war the more having a peace settlement with the League of Nations at the center of it was what he felt uh, we should be pushing for. And in actual fact, I don't think his plan for the League of Nations would have been any more effective at stopping conflict than the UN has been since 1945. But you still can't deny that it's better for countries to sit down around a table and talk than to fight. And in a way, this aspect of his character almost literally killed him because when he was in very ill health, he set off on a long speaking tour around the United States in the summer of 1919, pushing for the U.S. to sign the Versailles Treaty with the League of Nations in it. He was in bad health. Speaking in those days meant shouting, because if you were reaching 10,000 people in an auditorium or stadium or something, there were no public address systems then. And it was during that trip that he suffered the first of two almost fatal strokes. Uh, The second came a week later when he was back at the White House that really knocked him out of commission for most of the last year and a half of his presidency. So that was his idealistic side, impractical, but in some ways admirable. At the same time, he presided over the greatest assault on civil liberties in the United States since the South rolled back reconstruction after the Civil War.
0: There's one other aspect of this in your book that's we need to underline here, the idea of making the world safe for democracy. What did this mean in practice for Wilson's foreign policy, say, in the Philippines or in
3: Haiti? It meant nothing in practice, because what he had in mind in saying that was basically, let's break up the old Austro-Hungarian empire, where in fact, there were a lot of ethnic groups, uh, many of whose members wanted autonomy or independence. Let's carve out Poland from uh, Austria-Hungary, Russia, and, and, and Germany. But democracy certainly did not apply to American colonies uh, like the Philippines or to British colonies like Ireland at the time, Egypt, India, and war opponents like uh, Robert La Follette, senator from Wisconsin, said, hey, if we're fighting to make the world safe for democracy, why not self-determination for Ireland, for Egypt, for India?
0: You uh, have a new piece at thenation.com originally at Tom Dispatch. It's titled, What You Don't Have and Why. And you open with a story, not about Woodrow Wilson or, or Gene Debs, but about you in Denmark recently. Yeah, you
3: know, what happened was this. Uh, my wife and I were visiting Denmark. I had an infection that I knew would require an antibiotic. I went to the hospital. The doctor took a look at my hand, where the infection was, and he said, "Yes, you do need an antibiotic." Without getting out of his chair, he turned around, opened a cabinet behind him, gave me a bottle of pills, said, uh, "Take one of the, take two of these every day for ten days, and you'll be okay." And then we chatted for a moment, and then I said, uh, "Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to leave now. And where do I go to pay?" And he said, we have no facilities for that. (laughs) And that phrase just has echoed in my mind every time, all of us living in this country, even if we're lucky enough to have good medical insurance, you know all the back and forth with people in doctor's offices and insurance companies, is this covered, is that covered and so forth. And the key thing is alone, Uh, among the highly industrialized nations, we don't have comprehensive universal health care for everybody. And we should. And actually, in that article, I cite the case of Costa Rica, where they have a per capita income one sixth of that of the United States. And Costa Ricans live on the average two years longer than we do. Longer life experience. Wow. Because they've got a good national health care system. Now, why don't we have a good national health care system? I think it has to do with the fact that in countries that do, it was often either installed by the socialist party in that country, such as the Labour Party in Britain, which uh, set up their national health service after World War II, Or it was installed because more mainstream parties were trying to steal a march on the socialists. And and that's what happened in Germany, in fact, and get some system like this into place so that the socialists couldn't do it if they came to power and claim credit for it. But one of the things that happened in this 1917 to 21 period is that the Socialist Party was ruthlessly crushed in this country. Now, They never would have been as strong a force as they've been in many European countries, but they still were a real power in American politics. Six percent of the presidential vote in 1912, more than a thousand elected socialist officials around the country, members of state legislatures, city councils, and so forth. And when this repression happened, starting in 1917, uh, socialists of all kinds were among the prime targets, not just Debs, but many other party officials as well. There were enough of them behind bars that had they all been in the same uh, prison, they could have had a nice little party convention there. <laughs> and the the period left that party crushed. And, you know, these were the sorts of people who at that time talked about doing things like having a national healthcare system having old age pensions, which finally came into effect with Social Security, but not to 25 years later.
0: Adam Hochschild, his new book is American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace in Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. And he wrote a related piece about the American socialism that might have been for the nation. You can read it at thenation.com. Adam, thanks for talking with us today, and thanks for this book. Well,
3: it's always a pleasure, John.
0: Adam Hochschild's book, American Midnight, is out now in paperback. We spoke with him about it when the hardcover was published in October, 2022. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Ry Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.